Right, well, if you'd be uh, drawing your conversations to a close, we'll uh, continue our service here just in a moment. Well, as Joseph mentioned, today we are picking back up a series uh, that we started back in May earlier of this year. It's a series in the book of James with the title, uh, What Does True Faith Look Like? Uh, James, uh, if you remember, was the brother of Jesus himself. Uh, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he writes this letter to a group of Christians, uh, primarily Jewish Christians, who have been scattered out throughout uh, the region, uh, mostly caused by persecution. Uh, why does he write this letter? Well, uh, life seemed to be just really difficult for these Christians. Uh, there's lots of persecution. Uh, there are various trials and temptations that they faced. And so they were tempted to, to ease back from their faith, to not live as they should, to uh, step away from obedience. And so James writes to them to encourage them. God is still at work uh, and to implore them to keep pressing in. A true faith will continue to obey God. It will take care of widows and orphans, as we saw um, from previously. Uh, it, it doesn't only listen to God's word. It practices it. It does what it says. And so today we come to maybe the central passage of the whole letter, where James makes clear what true faith actually is. And so with that in mind, I'd like to invite up Eliza to come and read the passage for us now. Uh, Linda to read the passage for us now. Thanks, Linda. Today's readings is from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good! Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And this scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and he was cre credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by, the way, uh, by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what he, she did when she gave lodging to the spies and set them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Great, thanks, Linda. When my wife and I first landed in Shanghai back in 2016, uh, we started to explore the city. Uh, we were told that one place we had to go was called the AP Plaza in Puxi, uh, otherwise known as Shanghai's biggest fake market. 
Uh, I don't know if you've experienced one of these markets, uh, maybe similar to the ladies' market here in Hong Kong. It is pretty overwhelming experience. There's kind of shops of all sorts of kinds, Any, anything you'd want to buy at a reasonable price if you'll just look long enough. But what caught our attention were uh, these pearls. There's kind of these huge shops with all sorts of pearls, necklaces, earrings, very beautiful and reasonably priced. Now, of course, it's called the fake market. And so I'm assuming everything there is just kind of a, a knockoff, not real, genuine pearls. But as we browsed a bit, there were some shops that had signs that, that claimed to have genuine, real pearls. I didn't know what to think of this. Uh, if there were real pearls there, uh, it'd be really nice to get those. Of course, they wouldn't tarnish as easily. Uh, they wouldn't break. But were they actually being truthful? Or was I just being naive? Uh, were they just there to kind of rip off unsuspecting tourists like myself? How could I tell if these pearls were the genuine thing or if they were fake? Apparently, one way is uh, you can take a pearl and rub it against your teeth. And if it's like grainy, you know it's real. If it's soft, you know it's fake. Uh, don't worry, I didn't actually do that in the day. Uh, I just found that out later, a nice little tip. But whatever the case, I think we all understand that it's important to figure out whether something is genuine or whether it's fake. In my case, I needed to know this so I wouldn't get ripped off of uh, and lose some money. But what about when the stakes are a little bit higher, when it's something more serious and more consequential, something like our faith as Christians, our claim to eternal life, our salvation? If the pearls were found out to be fake, then, okay, I'd lose some money. But if our faith is found out to be fake, well, we put in jeopardy our very relationship with the Creator his promise of forgiveness, our hope of eternal life with him. How do we know? What about, what about you? How do you know that your own faith is genuine? What would you do to determine whether it is or not? Well, these questions are some of what James wants to answer for us in our passage this morning. And his answer is really simple. It's our deeds. It's our actions and behavior that shows that faith is true or not. I'm sure you got the main point as we just uh, heard Linda read through it. Uh, faith, if it is without deeds, without action, is no faith at all. It's actually dead. Uh, one way you could say it is faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. And so James wants to give us a warning. That's, that's what this passage is. Uh, and he doesn't do this to kind of throw us in despair or make us doubt, but rather to examine our hearts and to steer us towards a faith that's actually true, that really does save. And so, as Christians, we need to know true faith always produces a life of obedience and good deeds. And so our own faith must be accompanied by works. Uh, James will do this by showing three illustrations of faith and deeds. And so I think we learned three things uh, we must grasp about true faith. Uh, you can follow along on your uh, bulletin. So number one, true faith produces good deeds. Look with me at verse 14. 
So he begins, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? James is going to use the word faith a bunch of times in our passage. Uh, we often use the word faith in a really positive way. Like, I have faith in God, my, my Christian faith. But James is, is using the word faith to mean something less than real faith. Uh, we, we can see this by the way he says, this person claims to have faith. Can such faith save them? James is saying this kind of faith is a faith that's masquerading as faith. And so he asks them, what good is it if someone claims to have this but has no deeds? The answer is no good. This faith cannot save them. And so to illustrate his point, he asks his reader to imagine a scenario with him. Uh, verse 15, he says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Uh, imagine if one of our members here at Ambassador was without clothes and without daily food. Perhaps you could think of someone who's homeless, someone uh, who's intensely poor, someone with no family here to, to care for them. Uh, and you see them and you, they come up to you. What would you do? Well, in James' scenario, the person says, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. Uh, this is a common biblical blessing. It's a way uh, to uh, to extend God's peace to someone, to pray that God would sustain them, eh, that's not a bad thing. Uh, that's a good thing. We should pray that God would help uh, those people. But what's wrong here isn't the blessing itself. It's that the person's using the blessing as a cop-out, as a religious cover for their refusal to do anything about the person's needs. Hey, I, I'm sorry to hear about that. It must be really tough living without food. I really hope that all works out for you. I've, I've got to actually run. I have some things I've got to do, but I really pray that all works out. Does this do any good? No, of course not. Uh, what's the point of this illustration? James tells us in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James is saying the words of this uncaring believer that fails to help the person in need are as useless as their same words to profess faith. Uh, both of their words of care and their words of faith are empty. They have no meaning. Now, maybe this seems a little harsh at first glance. Uh, is James saying that uh, anytime we fail to help someone in need, uh, our faith is dead? Or is he saying that loving others is a requirement to become a Christian? Well, if we follow this carefully, uh, we'll see James isn't saying uh, you need deeds to be saved. Rather, he's saying deeds demonstrate whether you actually are saved. Deeds of obedience to God, specifically here, loving one's neighbor, uh, is the test. It's the test to determine the genuineness of faith. A faith is the root of being saved, and the deeds are the fruit of being saved. Maybe you can think of the relationship between faith and deeds uh, like that of planting a seed. 
So if you go uh, to do some gardening, you plant a seed in the ground, how would you know if that seed is actually alive? Well, it's only if it naturally produces a plant. If, if no plant grows over time, then we know that seed was dead. In the same way, faith is only alive if it naturally produces good deeds in us. If we've gone from spiritually dead to spiritually alive through God's work of salvation, then we will produce fruit in our lives. The fruit of good deeds, the fruit of loving those in need, the fruit of obeying God and following him. And so, according to James, loving deeds are a necessary part of faith. But is this biblical? I don't know if this all sounds a bit legalistic to you. Shouldn't we avoid focusing so much on good deeds and rules and following commands? Isn't faith about loving Jesus? Well, first, we need to be very clear that nothing James is saying undermines the wonderfully true doctrine that we are made right with God by grace alone through faith alone. Christ contributes everything. We contribute nothing. Like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is really the good news of the gospel. All of us have sinned. We've all betrayed God by the way we've treated him in our lives. And so we're deserving of God's judgment. And the only ground for our rescue is the righteousness and the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for us in our place. Praise God for that. But Paul doesn't stop in verse 9. He goes on in the very next verse to tell us the result of this faith. So Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. From the moment of salvation, by faith, we start on a journey, a journey of preordained works that God's given us that show evidence of our faith. If there is no evidence of this, we have reason to doubt that salvation ever really took place. Not only Paul, you can think of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7 when he tells his disciples how they'll know whether teachers after him are true Christians. He says, uh, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So, on the one hand, while uh, only God can see into a person's heart, we cannot do this, we can make wise assessments of other people by observing the regular fruit of their lives. All of us. Of course, we'll stumble from time to time, but those who know God will not continue in a lifestyle of bearing bad fruit. We've been transformed, and the, the fruit of our lives is evidence of that. Apple trees don't produce bananas. Strawberry plants don't produce figs. Uh, this fact of nature is true spiritually as well. We can identify those whose hearts have been redeemed by the fruit we see in their lives. 
All right, so what, what does this all mean for us? Well, let me ask you, if you are a Christian, uh, does your faith impact how you interact with and love your neighbor? Are there needs of a brother and sister here in this church that you know about? How might you put your faith into action to meet uh, at least one of those needs? If someone looked at your life, would they see fruit springing up from the seed of faith? Are you looking beyond your own needs to the needs of others? Maybe the needs of uh, your parents, the needs of your spouse, the needs of your coworkers, needs of the homeless and familyless here in our city. Of course, these good deeds won't earn favor with God, but if you are his child, God intends for you to be fruitful. He has given you the seed of faith and everything you need to accomplish them. And then I'd love to speak to the the non-Christians in this room as well. We're glad you're here with us. Uh, I wonder if it confuses you when you see people profess to be Christians, but then don't see any difference in their lives than the rest of the world. You may know someone maybe who claims uh, the name of Jesus, but uh, has zero concern whatsoever for anyone else besides themselves. Well, one answer is that it's possible for people to claim to be Christians when their faith is actually dead. It should confuse you. If you think, gosh, if that's faith, I want nothing to do with that. Well, the good news is God doesn't either. Now, of course, none of us will do this perfectly, will fail often, but true faith will grow. And over time, it will bear the fruit of love. The existence of false Christians doesn't disprove Christianity. It doesn't mean that Christianity doesn't work. Instead, look at the lives of true Christians. Why not spend some time, for example, getting to know the members here at Ambassador, uh, those who have shown themselves by their profession and their actions to be genuine, who've submitted themselves to the church's oversight and care. Jesus really does make a difference. And though it's imperfect, we'd love for you to see that in us by God's grace. And so James teaches that true faith will produce good deeds. Number two, then, true faith goes beyond knowledge. Look at verse 18 with me. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. At this point, James is imagining how someone might object to his claim. Uh, They'll say something like, okay, some people have faith, uh, other people have deeds. You know, James, you might have good deeds. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. You've got those, and I've got my faith. I believe in Jesus. That's enough. Uh, Good deeds aren't really for me. Well, James responds, uh, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. It's kind of a challenge. He says, show me your faith apart from your works. I dare you to try that. Uh, You can't. There's no way, actually, to show me that you actually trust God if you don't do anything in practice to actually trust him. Deeds are how you show your faith. James says, you know what your faith is like? It's like the demons. They have faith, 
Uh, They believe there is one God, but does their faith save them? Well, no, they don't actually trust him. Your faith is, is no different than theirs. I think it's a really brilliant illustration. The demons, James says, are kind of the most orthodox of theologians. Uh, John MacArthur uh, comments on this really helpfully. Uh, Look at what he says. As far as factual doctrine is concerned, demons are the best of the best, all of whom know and believe there is one true God. They also are very much aware that scripture is God's word, that Jesus Christ is God's son, that salvation is by grace through faith, that Jesus died, was buried, and raised to atone for the sins of the world. But all of that orthodox knowledge, significant as it is, cannot save them. They know the truth about God, Christ, and the Spirit, but hate it. This point is really clear. It's possible to know the facts about the gospel, to recite them by heart, even to be a theological scholar yourself and yet be lost. That's exactly what most Pharisees were in Jesus' day. They studied the Bible, they copied it, they taught it. They did not live out, though, what it said. And they certainly didn't place their trust in the Messiah that the scriptures pointed to. And friends, of course, it can be the same with us. We can say, I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm forgiven. doesn't matter what I do. I'm accepted by faith alone. Perhaps you've said a prayer, you've made a decision to accept Jesus when you were younger, uh, but you don't really think about that decision uh, anymore in your daily life. certainly doesn't affect your goals, your priorities, your values, your morals, your relationships, or anything else. Uh, Could it be that your belief amounts to head knowledge? Could it be that like the demons, you believe in God but haven't yet placed your trust in him? If so, James would say, you are in a dangerous position. Your faith is useless. How would you know? How would you know if this was you? Well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the Christians to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And this is a good and right thing for us to do. And so how would we do that? How could we tell if all we have is head knowledge? I think there's some diagnostic questions we can ask that could be helpful for us. So I've just put four down here. And number one, is there a noticeable difference between my life now that I'm a Christian and my life before? Is there a noticeable difference in my reaction to sermons and hearing God's word? Is there a noticeable growth in the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Is there a noticeable difference in following the Bible's moral teaching, especially when it's really difficult or unpopular or uncomfortable? There's many more we could list here, but I think that's a good start. And of course, we need to be clear, all Christians are at different stages of growth and obedience. Especially if you're a newer Christian, you may not have enough time yet to see a vast difference between your life before. You may still struggle with sin and some areas of that, and that's okay. James is not primarily talking to you. He's rather the person who over a long period of time has no interest in following God's commands. This person, uh, it's this person who should in fact have little confidence that they are saved. But, praise God, there is a faith that does save. Not a faith by mere knowledge, not by doing enough good works that's 
kind of added on, but by trusting that the gospel is true, that Jesus really died for your sins and your failures. And by coming to him, trusting and leaning on his sacrifice in your place, and then walking with him in love and gratitude, uh, working in all things to please him and glorify him by his grace. As Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friend, this would be the invitation for you. If you've never moved beyond knowledge to trust in Jesus, come to him today. Ask God to transform your heart, to change your desires, uh, to receive him as the Lord and a master of your life, and then spend the rest of your life resting in him and his promises to satisfy you, to remove your burdens, to give you life with him eternally. So true faith goes beyond knowledge. Finally then, number three, true faith obeys God. James finishes his argument about why works are necessary by showing two positive examples of how this plays out in people's lives. So he describes Abraham and Rahab from the Old Testament as models of true faith, not because they merely professed God, but because they took action. So in in verse 21, for instance, we read, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Uh, Many of us are familiar, of course, with the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. God tests Abraham's faith by telling him to take his only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him on the altar. This was a difficult test, not only because Abraham, of course, loved Isaac as his only son, but also because God had promised to fulfill his promises to Abraham in Isaac. If he was gone, how would God's promises come true? And so, what was Abraham to do? Well, Abraham obeyed. He trusted, he leaned on God's promises, even when it was hard and confusing. Why was God testing his faith? Well, he was looking for the kind of obedience or works that showed Abraham's faith that it was not dead, that it was real faith. And his obedience to God's word proved that his faith was genuine, that he really did trust God. This is what James goes on to say in verse 22. You see that faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And we see the exact same thing in the example of Rahab. In verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them out in a different direction? Rahab's story in Joshua 2, uh, she's a pagan woman living in Jericho. She hears about God's mighty acts through Israel, that Israel is going to conquer them, how he was the true God, and she believed And therefore, when the spies came from Israel into Jericho, rather than handing them over, she hid them from the king. She helped them escape. And so what is the point of these two examples? 
Well, both this great uh, patriarch and father Abraham and this lowly Gentile woman were shown to be righteous with God by their obedience. Uh, It was obeying God that justified their claim to believe in him. Abraham could have easily said, no, I'm not doing that. I cannot do that, God. But would we say that he trusted God if that were the case? Well, no. Instead, he, his trust in God was noticeable by the way he acted, showing his faith to be genuine. And this is what we've been saying before. It's our obedience that proves our faith. You can think of Jesus, maybe, in John uh, chapter 14, when he says, If you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commands. Keeping his commands proves true love and trust in him, not a mere profession of words. If we don't keep his commands, how can we claim to love him? How can we claim to trust him? I took my son, Brooks, to the doctor last month uh, to do an allergy test which was super fun for him. Um, When we got the results, the doctor said that he was allergic to shellfish. So shrimp, lobster, even octopus. Uh, Unfortunately, he really loves octopus. So he was in tears, uh, which was sad. But what if I received that news from the doctor and then refused to take his advice? I didn't obey. I didn't take action. I just kept making Brooks shrimp and clam pasta for dinner every night. What would you say about my faith in that doctor? Friends, if you believe in your doctor, you follow the doctor's orders. Do we believe in God? Do we follow what he says? Do we trust his word, his commandments, his leading in our life? Trust that they are good and for his glory. And do we believe him enough to trust him with your future, with your relationships, with your accommodation, with your family, with your career, with your children, and with your local church? What ways might God be calling you into greater obedience uh, this season in your life? Maybe if you're having a conversation with someone after church or out to lunch, uh, why not ask them, this question. Uh, ask them to share a time when they were able to obey God, even when it was really difficult. What was their experience like? Uh, how did God help them? I'm sure it'll be encouraging for both of you to see evidence of each other's genuine living faith. And so then, we've seen that true faith works itself out in our lives. Like a living plant, true faith naturally produces good deeds. We've seen that true faith goes beyond knowledge. It involves trusting and resting in who Jesus is. And we've seen that true faith obeys God, even when it's really difficult. Let's be honest, this is a challenging text. It's challenging to me as I look at my own life and actions, especially when it convicts us of ways we're currently not obeying, of ways that we're not showing fruit in our lives where we should be. What happens when we fail to meet a need when we fail to obey God? Well, James would say, when we sin first, we should never be okay with that. Uh, We must fight with everything we have to resist the devil's lies and cling to Jesus and his commands. But he would also say, if you are convicted this morning by areas of your life where you need greater obedience, praise God. 
He is at work in you. Don't despair. And certainly don't begin to try harder to just do more work on your own. Instead, cling to Christ. Place a tighter grip on the truth that we actually are saved by works. Uh, Not our own, but by Christ's. When we were lost in sin, when all our good deeds and works were nothing but filthy rags compared with our failings and sins, Jesus, God's own son, became a baby. He came to earth and he led a perfectly sinless life. He obeyed his father in every way. And then at the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. Uh, His resurrection proved that the payment was accepted. When he gives us the gift of faith and when we believe, the Holy Spirit applies everything, all the work that Jesus did to us. His perfect sinless life is counted as ours. His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And the last thing that Christ will work to complete our salvation is to come for us again. He will take us to live with him. We will reign and rule with him in glory. Through his works, Christ has accomplished for us what we could never do ourselves. Praise God. And so church, press into him. Celebrate his perfect work to save you, and then get to work doing the good work that God has given us to do for his glory. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for the truth of your word. We recognize that we need your help. Lord, help our faith be more than mere words or theology or profession. God, help our faith be one that works actively by loving you, by loving those around us. We pray that if there are any of us convicted by a dead faith or no faith at all, Lord, that they would come to you in repentance and trust so that they'd follow Christ wholeheartedly and experience his forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation that you even now work to change us and grow us by your spirit. And so it's all in Christ's name we pray. Amen.